Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Well, my friends, I am... I'm always a little excited uh, to be back in the studio. I'm even more excited to be back in the studio this time, though, because we are we. We are a true we. Not the royal we, and not even the we of myself and Laura, or myself and Hayden, or myself and anyone else. We are three. We are Laura, Hayden, and myself talking to, I know, talking today about sloth. But before we talk about sloth... Laura, why don't you say hi to the old podcast crowd? Hey, podcast world. (laughs) And Laura, we are in your father's professional studio, which allows us, the one and only Billy Batstone, which allows us to have not just two of us, but three of us. Our third, of course, is the right Reverend Hayden Butler. Hayden, welcome to the podcast. Great to be back. We're moving up in the world, guys. (laughs) Next time for... (laughs) A third microphone. What next? I'm sorry, but this is really cool. You and I once tried to like plug into like my Mac to try even record wow. just two yeah. voices on one thing, which didn't work at all. So this feels like the future. Um, I guess we got to make it really good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. Stakes are okay. high. No, let's not be slothful about this. Now, we are jumping right back into our series on the seven deadly sins, and we are at sin number... I mean, she's got it at four. Um, we'll see. We'll see what we end up doing with this. But the sin that we're talking about today, she calls them capital vices, not just the seven deadly sins, which is a little, a little sexier title, but capital vices. She has a nice explanation of that for those of you who've been reading along. Um, but we're tackling the, the sin of sloth. Now, she opens with the question or a picture of, of a sloth, of the picture of laziness, the picture that sloth is basically this horrible sin of not being productive. And she talks about how this is a lot of traction in a society like ours. Laura and I uh, have, of course, discussed the hyper drive to optimize every moment and every aspect of one's self and existence. And so in that context, in the American go, 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 optimize all things context, at first glance or blush, it would seem sloth is is not doing that, is is taking your foot off the gas, is wasting time watching things or not making your new business or not starting this new thing or not optimizing your workflow or whatever. Not hustling. Not hustling, yeah. Not having seven jobs, maybe having one. Uh, And so sloth at first in this context appears to be laziness. How does that strike you, Laura? Laziness. I have a difficult relationship with sloth. I think as we've talked about often, the the relationship of sloth with our boundaries as human beings mm. uh i'm always struggling trying to figure out what the line of sloth versus the line of rest versus the line of diligence is so i'm excited to talk about this today i think especially where we live in southern california there is a definite hustle culture um there is not downtime isn't super valued it doesn't have any economic uh output and so uh, I, I'm looking forward to talking about this today and trying to get to the bottom of something that is often misunderstood and often just interpreted as one thing when actually sloth could mean a whole number of things. Yeah, we are in a very maybe peculiar context. Like we're in a Southern California new money context of 
you know, everyone is building something themselves. Mm -hmm. Everyone is establishing themselves. Everyone is starting something, is doing something. It feels weird not to start something around here, right? And so like that, that, that push to feel like if you're engaged with reality, with life, if you care about your family, if you, if you're a person of any kind of consequence, you need to be really doing things and inventing and creating and breaking things and rebuilding things. And that is very much the ethos of, of our area, right? It reminds me of our vainglory conversation about how suddenly, for the first time, fame is seems so attainable. So like right. it just inches away. And I think sloth also deals with the idea that uh, we're living in a society where fortune and wild success, if you just put in a few, you know, 10 more hours a week, could be yours. Well, that's what's so weird about this area is the people who live here are the people who made it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, a lot yeah, of the yeah. people who can afford to live here or are moving here or are building or rebuilding here, they are the whatever small percent of people who successfully started some business. Mm-hmm. Or And so it's it seems like a disproportionate number of people I might know are wildly successful business people, right? Yeah. Like that seems like that's a kind of consolidated kind of population in this area by virtue of the fact that it's difficult for most people to live here. Um, so, so that idea of is sloth, laziness sort of counterposed to this hyper protestant work ethic this entrepreneurial spirit this incredible quote she has from henry ford um where henry ford says work is our sanity our self-respect our salvation through work and work alone (laughs) may health wealth and happiness be secured hey now i'm going to kick it over to you this is sort of the land that ford built Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're in a, almost a condensed or con- concentrated uh, version of that, even in, in Orange County or South Orange County in particular. Does this vibe that sloth is therefore just not being this sort of hyper-productive person in society? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that is not what sloth is, but that is how it is often perceived, for sure. And it's, I think it's gotten even, even it's trickled out of the sort of industrial uh, conversation to like less of the professionalized version of this, which is like, yeah, go away. It's like, not, it's less, I guess I would call it careerism mm-hmm. uh, or even entrepreneurism, you know, and it's more, um, it's trickled down just to doing, you know, it's, it's kind of a general activism uh, that, and that maybe, maybe, you know, in my own musings on this, I would say it's probably a post-professionalism uh, where it's, okay, we've, we've founded the company. We've done, we've got the thing. We're wildly successful at that. We have, you know, our, our house in the most ideal neighborhood. Right. And now what do we do? Well, we got to you know, keep the ball rolling that same impulse because it's not, it's not necessarily work related then gets translated into, okay, well, I guess we got to keep doing something else. We got to, we got to get involved with some causes. We got to, you know, advocate for the right things. We got to be activistic about the right things. And it just is that continual restlessness of life that, that continues beyond. All right. I've made, uh, you know, as much money as I can, you know, conscionably <laughs> maybe do. And now I got to like really busily go about doing, you know, sort of philanthropy now or something like that. Not feeling or not looking busy feels like something's wrong right. or, or like I am in error or I look bad. Um, that I, what she starts to point out uh, after sort of opening with this question about laziness mm. is 
in the tradition, which usually flips back at least to um, Evagrius and Cassian, uh, Gregory the Great maybe, and then up to Aquinas, or sort of her key figures in the, the Christian tradition wrestling with these seven or eight um, vices. Um, but she's like, in the tradition, uh, workaholism is as much a part of sloth as anything else, mm. and that sort of blows up mm. our our basic starting categories, right? right? That the very thing you're describing, whether it's a hyper careerism or a hyper, you know, starting and working at your business, or just a hyper busyness, uh, uh, whether it's a workaholism that is sort of professional or it's just a busy holism, right? <laughs> right. That is that could be like, well, I'm trying to research the perfect thing to dial in the perfect way to do the perfect thing. Um, right. She said that both of these are aspects of sloth, which now begins to beg the question if sloth isn't laziness, if, if it's not just that or only that or even that, what is sloth? And I think, I mean, if, if we want to just use, I think maybe the most <laughs> disturbing, but also maybe the most helpful passage early on in her chapter, I think we should just probably quote from Evagrius yeah. himself. Do you, do you have that in front of you? I do. You're talking about that lengthy quote, uh, the description of vice. The demon of acedia. Got it. Yeah. All right. I, I, would you let me read it? Yeah, please. The demon of acedia, also called the noonday demon, Psalm 90, verse 6 is the most oppressive of all the demons. He attacks the monk about the fourth hour or 10 a.m. and besieges his soul until the eighth hour or 2 p.m. First of all, he makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all, and that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then he compels the monk to look constantly toward the windows, to jump out of the cell, to watch the sun, to see how far it is from the ninth hour or 3 p.m. To look this way and that, and further, he instills in him a dislike for the place and for his state of life itself, for manual labor, and also the idea that love has disappeared from among the brothers and there is no one to console him. And should there be someone during those days who has offended the monk, this too the demon uses to add further to the dislike of the place. He leads him on to a desire for other places where he can easily find the wherewithal to meet his needs and pursue a trade that is easier and more productive. He adds that pleasing the Lord is not a question of being in a particular place, for scripture says that the divinity can be worshipped anywhere. He joins to these suggestions the memory of his close relations and of his former life. He depicts for him the long course of his lifetime while bringing the burdens of asceticism before his eyes. And as the saying has it, he deploys every device in order to have the monk leave his cell and flee the stadium. No other demon follows immediately after this one. A state of peace and ineffable joy ensues in the soul after this struggle. <laughs> um, okay, so much there. I mean, maybe Laura... Just. Oh, I just wanted to comment. I think on the modern per so the hours in this one, right? Or the demon comes yeah. from ten to two p.m. I think in twenty twenty two the demon comes from twelve p.m. or twelve, yeah, to like four p.m. I think you have to move it back two hours. 12. Personally, yeah, no, I think that's it's right. It's the post lunch malaise <laughs> yeah. and the like. When is this day gonna yes. end? Yes. Okay. So it's you've done everything you had needed to do or that you would normally do, mm -hmm. and then you got to lunch. Yeah. And then you had lunch. 
this just happened to me before I came over here. And then you like had a lunch and then you're like, was that gluttony? And then you're like metabolite. And then I was like, I'm going to take a nap in my car before I come over to you guys. And then I was like, why am I even doing this? (laughs) I mean, everything happened. I was like, why did I pick sloth and this to do right now? Why don't we do something? (laughs) All the things start setting in the weirdest way. What jumps out besides that timeline, although that has to be fundamental, right? <laughs> um, like we're pretty good at structuring the early part of a day. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then right. we just sort of run out of steam and have trouble getting over that, that kind of first hurdle of lunch, the first meal. But then we got we to gotta get to the thing he says about place because that, that, that changes the whole game when he starts talking about the place of the monk and wanting to flee his place and looking out the window and... I mean, it's so yeah. good and so provocative. Yeah. So, so Laura, you got us to the lunch hour plus, <laughs> right? This kind of slow, sad, who am I in the world? Right, right. Regular feel, like weird moment of a normal day. And it, Well, and I think, I don't know, again, I was trying to think of what the contemporary con- comparison is. I'm not living in a monastery and, you know, but I think... That translates into for a modern person, it would be like that's when you go on the Redfin. Mm-hmm. Or I remember at 23, it's like that's when you're looking at like PhD programs and you're like, should I? Right. <laughs> right. You're like researching the Peace Corps. Like, what are we doing? Who am I? Right. Who? Yeah. But those, I think those are moments. And I, I would love some more help connecting that to this idea of sloth. But I could really relate to those moments of like, what am I doing here? Am I not? Am I doing the wrong thing? Um, is this, should I be doing something else? And then that keeps you from doing the work that's actually in front of you. Yeah. So Hayden, what does that mean that in a normal day, we're not really good with having downtime? I mean, it almost seems to push you toward, he mentions manual labor, like, oh, should we just immediately after lunch, like uh, the siesta people like on the wrong thing? Like, is that dream something we shouldn't even pursue? Like, like, should we get back to work so we don't start having these ridiculous thoughts about reframing, reforming our entire life, changing everything we do? Uh, well, I mean, we're, we have a common tendency to be delusional about increments of time. Hmm. <laughs> um, we start, I know, and I think this is true of many of us. We start off like the night before, plan on the day ahead, being like, man, I'm going to crush this day. This day oh, is going to be great. I'm going to get all these things. I have my to do lists ready to go. I have my, you know, meal prep done. I got the thing going ready. And it's, and I think by the time you reach noon, uh, you reach that, that sort of malaise of the middle of the day, you realize how little, uh, how much, how much you, you will not be able to get done. I think it starts to set in yeah. how, how much will be undone at the end of the day and how, how much sm- hasn't been done right, that you had how much hasn't been done and how much is left <laughs> to do and it crushes that delusion which then you know t- carries with it the temptation not only to think not to think the more limited and i think the more appropriate thought which in the humbling thought humility would be in saying wow i really overplanned this day and i have an overflated <laughs> sense of myself and my work ethic and my potential or just what this day could actually have you know despite how much i wanted to get mm-hmm. done and then the tempting, tempting voice beyond that, as I think, is the voice of sloth, which is to say, well, my work is meaningless. Hmm. It's meaningless to work at all. And so it just sort of abandon. I can't do as much as I want to do, so I cannot do anything. Or I don't want to do anything. Yeah, maybe I'm in the wrong career. Why did I make this choice? Right. Yeah, maybe the environment is is yeah. an issue. Right? If I was somewhere else or doing something else, I would be twice the person I am right now. <laughs> I exactly. certainly would have had a better yeah. Wednesday morning. Yeah, because <laughs> that's no, what it that's does. Right. It pivots immediately into staring out the window, the monk's cell, 
and thinking about other places and other activities. Yeah, it's kind of like the midlife crisis of the day. Yeah. When you realize I'm too far gone in this day for this day to be anything what it's than what it's going to be and for me to do anything else with this day. I can't I have not the the wind the horizon of potential of this day has diminished to this pinprick on the uh, you know in front of me and I have to just walk the rest of it. So I might as well, you know, either sit down or just trudge lovelessly through the rest of it. <laughs> Well, and, and he mentions, you know, the first line mm-hmm. that you read, the demon of ascedia, right? So mm-hmm. maybe we should just open that word up a little bit. Um, the Greek word they use, I mean, akedia, akedia but I guess would be yeah. the, the Greek, but literally means lack of care. Yeah. It's like you went all in on the morning and now you're just like, you know what? I just, I just don't care. <laughs> maybe I could care about something else, but this thing that did not quite pan out right in front of me, or I did all the things and I feel completely unsatisfied or it wasn't that impressive, or maybe those weren't even the right things I should have been up to or something else happened instead. Right. Um, but that lack of care sets in because what she so helpfully does, I think in this chapter is describe sloth as opposed to sort of love and the right. love of yeah. the right things, the love of what the Lord calls you to. You just start to become... I don't know if apathetic is the only word, but you start to become apathetic toward calling, toward place, toward circumstance, towards whatever. Um, when, if we're, I mean, if we're just talking about place, I want to come back to place for a second. Um, why does place matter? We're in such a, I don't know if it's necessarily mobile, but we're in such a hyper mobile culture. It, it, isn't it the case that many people make really good decisions for mobility's sake to pursue things that might be passions or to to try new adventures people are rethinking work right now and and saying you know why if i'm working remotely why can't i just go to hawaii and work from there or go to europe and work from there Uh, you know isn't there a a nice freedom to just sort of hopping over onto zillow and and just (laughs) some of us who've done that too much know that's not a freedom but but i mean it really does come back to this sort of actual physical this is what the day is was and can or cannot be this is the place i am for the monk in their cell i mean Mm -hmm. this is where you're like should i become a monk i mean i love that line about fleeing not only the monastery but the stadium the stadium the stadium the the arena of whatever life was the the great actual thing you might have been called to you start to question everything now everything's up for debate but how is it that questioning everything has to do so often for, with place yeah. and placidness? Because we're just not the excitement about being young, teenager, or twenty-somethings, right? Even thirty-somethings is like we could we could go somewhere, we could do something different. Um, does that mean we're just supposed to not entertain those kinds of things? Is that a danger in and of itself? What is it about place that that seems to seems to rankle? against uh, that sense of, of, of being able to continue on without losing care? Like, is it hard to, well, maybe that's part of it. Is it hard to continue to love the same thing or the familiar thing? Yeah, I think she goes at length in that example of um, the marriage, right? And the, mm. um, and and says, talks about the 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 monk's intolerable burden to stay true to one's commitment to God with all its daily drudgery and discipline. And then she goes at length into that example of a marriage um, and how it's kind of that daily uh, 
She says, the slothful person in this sense is one who resists the effort of doing day after day after day, whatever it takes to keep the bonds of love strong and living and healthy, whether he or she feels particularly inspired about doing it or not. Um, And she brings up those examples, uh, that example quite often, which is quite counterintuitive to a lot of um, claims I've been seeing recently. Uh, Even, I feel like in the past few months, you know, there... Tish Harrison Warren posted something about marriage and like, uh, I forget the title of it, but it was something about sort of average or mediocrity or something like that. And people blew up and thought like, you're settling, right? And this idea (laughs) of... That's right. um, So yeah, I think the daily drudgery of life, doing whatever we're doing, whatever the career is, whatever the relationship is, there's going to be moments where it becomes less than thrilling um and our society has told us that means you're settling because there's a there is a life of constant excitement available to you if you could find it and i think that's always a really tough uh demon to battle of like there could be something where i am a perfectly energized optimized content person at all times Mm -hmm. um and so if we start to believe that lie then everything around us starts to feel inadequate so if I feel this way, that means I have settled or chosen wrongly, I guess is what settled means. Chosen yeah. wrongly in maybe my choice of partner, my choice of job, my choice of Place, home, yeah. right? So it implies. So then the first thing was that in general, maybe we bought the lie that choosing rightly means feeling energized and excited regularly about the things that that we've chosen or that the Lord's called us to. So that would be like the first misunderstanding is that we're meant to be driven by that, not just sort of happily surprised uh, from time to time, but but we need that. Um, Mm. We talked about ways of doing church that sort of feed that idea that every every Sunday you got to get a hit of this (laughs) this sort of Jesus dopamine thing. And, and you can get through the week almost just to get there again. Um, but then so often what we find, at least for our young folks as they go off to college, is um, church as experience, as a weekly experience, or church as sort of youth group experience, uh, obviously disappears. And many, um, many, many, many young people stop going to church, leave the faith, <laughs> right? That we've, we've sort of created an expectation that we can't actually meet and and at some point maybe realize we we don't even want to or we're not we're not supposed right. to but we've already created this expectation so that that when people don't feel that they feel like maybe i'm at the wrong church or maybe this faith really thing isn't for me because it's it's just not there anymore it just doesn't 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 strike me the same way as when i was young or when i was going to camp or something i mean i feel like we've we've done this in many mm-hmm. different places and yet sloth like names the the moment in which you feel like oh shoot yeah, like what right. is this dissatisfaction right. this and then this lack of care this like you know what this willingness to just <laughs> throw it overboard to find a new something um she she talks about um when she talks about it in the in the the language of busyness when she talks about it in the language of laziness she talks about them both as sort of forms of escape right of getting away from this feeling um you're like trying to escape the feeling of not having made a good choice it's really scary to think that the fomo we see in um 
maybe people with their phones or especially younger people with like what's going on if i if i text this person that i'll be over there i might miss so and so texting me about being over there that fomo would haunt us into, into our career uh life that fomo would haunt us into our marriage life that it, i mean that that's really scary that would haunt us into our church life that that we're living in this world that continues to sort of put out there that there's always a better choice you can make and therefore it's really hard um to 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 stop or choose anything i can think of just the other day gosh it must have just been a week or two ago and i was going back and forth about what notebook i was going to go analog with and yeah. you said what did you say to me i think i said pull the trigger you said just choose and be free yeah and i was like dang it that was like a word from the lord i was like but this one and then this right. one and it was ridiculous how much time i was spending on yeah. looking at paper to write on and you and you said pick one and be free and i was like dang it was like a deep wisdom through a text and i was like that but that's it it was like i kept thinking i'm not gonna be like you know feeling good or be happy or whatever until i make the perfect choice and so i need to constantly keep that's looking right. for the next better possible review of the next thing it was a deep dive, guys. There were options out there that I have never heard of in my life. I was comparing the weight of paper yeah. and its overall toothiness. Like Japanese scales. websites that are like, do they even I ship was translating US? Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I found a Japanese stationery store in Costa Mesa. Costa Mesa has everything. Yeah. And uh, I even went over there. I went over there three times before I even made a purchase. They probably thought I was just like stealing wow. stuff. I don't know what they thought. I'm this like not Japanese person like like walking through the tiny shop, trying not to knock things over, and then leaving like two of the three times without buying anything because I'm just like trying to decide. I mean, it was insane, <laughs> humiliating to say that out loud now. Um, but you were like, choose and be free. And I was like, yep. so this comes back to place. You can only be in one place. Yeah. Right? You can only, <laughs> God willing, you can only be in one marriage, yeah. right? You can only right. be in one church. Yeah. Right? Like you can't li just literally, as far as place goes, mm -hmm. you cannot be in two places. You can be in one place. And and you were saying, thus <laughs> is the path of freedom. Right? Um, and I was thinking, but what if? And, and so that seems to be at the heart of all of this, that when you get to that moment after lunch, that little down moment, that little whatever moment, all of a sudden, all the what ifs just like populate in front of you mm. and or whatever your your favorite ones are if you feel underappreciated at work all of the work what ifs probably rise to the surface whatever was stressful about the, earlier in that day you know like if it was like whatever I, you know I, interaction with so-and-so or or something you know or it was like i was in traffic right then all of a sudden it's like if we only lived right right in the beautiful land of whatever um do you guys genuinely do you guys struggle with this like we can talk, we read this and we're like, oh, I see these things. We're, we're not teenagers. We're not 20 somethings in that way. We're all married. We're all sort of settling, settled uh, in a variety of vocations and in, and in um, you know, family situation and all sorts of things. Does it go away? Do we still actively wrestle with this? I, I can joke around about paper, but it is still ridiculously true. <laughs> Yeah. Um, is it is it true in any deeper level? Have we just sort of solved for it and so we can recognize it quickly and no big deal? Or is this something that we genuinely have to wrestle with and against? 
anybody. <laughs> it definitely is. Uh, it's just definitely easier to hide it now um, because it's so easy to, to you know, it's, we have so many means at our disposal to fantasize about an, an existence other than the one we're living. Um, I don't, I can just reach into my pocket, pull the thing out, you know, pull the, pull the phone out and I can be anywhere. Yeah. You know, at least like virtually and, you know, temporarily that scratches the itch. Right. But to genuinely be sort of in a, in a, in a position in place. And you know, I have a, I have a friend who uh, just made his, um, his final profession in a monastery. Um, and, uh, you know, after a long time of discernment and formation, and I asked him, I go, what is unique about the monastic space? And he said, he goes, it's a place where maybe that, you know, among many that are growing fewer and further between in this world, that everything gets the chance to catch up to you. Hmm. And he really, he goes, he goes, and that's really what the, the formation process over the seven to 10 years of going from the novitiate to final avowal means is, is you have to, it's such a long amount of time between entry and, and making actually perpetual vows because, you know, you need to have the opportunity for, for the, your whole life to catch up to you. Hmm. And then hmm. for you to get bored with not only the place, not only the people, but with everything about yourself too. Hmm. And then find what's on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I've gotten to the point in my life when I've, I've, I've let everything catch up enough to the point where I'm, I'm genuinely bored with the place, the people, and myself finally. Uh, the, the, the last refuge of what I think would be interesting in the midst of a mundane world is we think our own interior space is, right? Which is why it's so easy to hide now. Uh, and when I can get bored with that, finally. So I think I think it's in bit in different areas of life that's 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 happened and that's happening. And some areas I'm like I'm not touching that one. <laughs> uh, and then, but yeah, I think I think until that happens, I don't know that we we can that we can make progress against acedia. Hmm. Do you have to? So let's say she says it's this, or I think quoting Aquinas says it's like a resistance to the work, the Lord's like work in our lives yeah. right which is what you're describing with your friend yeah. it's like long slow obedience in the same direction um, in a place in among a place a people. among a people okay yeah and because and i think we, we need to add that yeah. you know i think the incarnational aspect of this is critical especially to a christian understanding of formation it is that it happens in time in a place among a people and like and that actually may be the demon of acedia that uh, tempts us to think well it's really an eternal timeless spaceless mm. thing this grace thing you know it can work anywhere and really in any way right and it's like no probably not actually you know there there are there are hard trod ways in which grace has uh, for many many centuries uh, worked in and among people and although we have to always be receptive to um, what seems to be a new thing that the, the spirit could be teaching us there is the overwhelming ordinary condition of the Christian life and Christian maturity is to is to is to be formed in the way that that you know countless multitudes have been formed before us and that we're not special <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in that you know so we're never would you say in general people aren't anywhere or we need to be in a job long enough to be maybe not deeply bored hmm. and then get through yeah long enough in a relationship to be bored with the novelty of mm-hmm. whatever and then get through mm-hmm. uh, long enough at a church to be bored right and then get not and not go to the next right. one right um, like that that this kind of the health is on the other side of a genuine boredom, mm-hmm. frustration, 
the catching up of all the things, right. including all the silly things we may have thought attached to marriage or to church experience or to whatever the case, career or whatever. Um, so all of these then become really difficult in our context in which people are rarely even alone long enough, let's say without a phone or an escape hatch, mm-hmm. to even allow boredom to set in, right? Like as a parent, we're like, again, much better with this. We're like, or at least I think some parents are certainly talking about like, oh, our kids need to be bored. Yeah. Like we, we need to make sure they get bored and then they figure out what to do. Um, Mm -hmm. being bored rather than oh my gosh they're bored like we need to entertain them again like that might be adorable as an idea before you have kids but once you have kids certainly if you have a few kids and they're at different ages you're like I (laughs) I'm not even a little interested in entertaining them all day in whatever way they demand or whatever right Um, and so like you want them to be bored because then you're like oh and you start to say things that you just don't we don't apply readily to ourselves creativity comes on the other side of boredom appreciation or you know gratefulness you know comes on the other side of boredom and then you can see where you are and how the backyard is not the worst place in the world or whatever um there's a kind of dyad there too yeah and we have to account for the fact that this is as much a kind of community thing because again we get formed in communities and and in the company of one another i think which is you know we have we can kind of have the over and under functioning uh you know dyadic relationship with each other where you know i see my kid who's like it's like i'm bored you know, and it's like, oh, I should like, I should do this. But then I, then I, if I don't, then I get, let's say that I have them that moment of clarity where I'm like, all right, they need to like learn how to wonder and how to imagine and how to create the thing. Okay. They do that. And then they go off and independently play. What's my next thought as a parent is, is, oh, they don't, they don't need me. They like, they don't, and, and oh, they're, 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 they're moving beyond me. Oh, and yeah. uh, oh gosh, you know I'm not necessary to their life anymore, and it's and then I have to confront <laughs> myself like, oh wow, your 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 time is passing, like and, and and all those little moments are these little like icon icons along the way of like, you know like the bell's gonna toll, man, like you know you're you're like you know sick transit Gloria, you know you're you're go- and 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 I have that, but that's the thing yeah, with yeah, me, yeah. and it can be as much both of those things sort of in a in a death lock with each other, right? Is mm-hmm. is I need to I need to not feel this. I'm gonna like I'm gonna curate life for my kids and that looks really great like oh look at what an involved parent you know right. and, and all this stuff but really i'm just trying not like to, to kick against my own finitude and th- yeah. <laughs> you know and so it can have this kind of like push t- this tug of war between those two impulses are you saying that sometimes parents want to live vicariously through their own children <laughs> <laughs> i've heard of such things you know uh, one, one does here it seems like well, okay the idea of them getting bored sounds good but not yeah. the idea of me getting right. bored. So usually as a parent, it's like, you need to get bored and then figure out what to do because I have things I'd rather be doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I need mm-hmm. to like be sending some emails or reading a book that I've been wanting to read or something right. like that. Whereas if we were with them, okay, so as a as an almost accidental experiment, which I mentioned at least to one of you, um, we decided to cut um, shows out from like the kids' like week. We still have family moving on on Fridays. But like as an almost impulse, it was, I said, you were just no, no more shows. We're just not going to do shows. And anytime you ask for a show, we're going to read a book. Now, what I didn't realize was I was saying we, and they don't read books actively. I mean, John yeah. could, <laughs> but all of a sudden it wasn't like when you get bored or want a show, you need to go figure it out. I was like committing Lisa and I to sitting down and reading with them every time that happens. And I remember like the second or third or fourth time it happened. And I was like trying to do something else. I was like, I promise I would drop whatever 
and sit down mm-hmm. and read as like this like you know happy punishment thing or whatever <laughs> mm. um like books are great um but all of a sudden what it meant was i was sitting on the couch more often with them mm. trying to like you know steer something about whatever they're you know curating their little world to be more you know books or imagination or whatever and all of a sudden it was like genuinely like impinging on my schedule and what i was like there was at least one time in which i was heading to do something that needed to get done and one of them asked to watch something, and I had made a commitment, and I didn't see Lisa to my left or to my right, and I was like, "We got get a book," and Peter I just Pan. turned around, get a book, <laughs> and we and we all join on the couch. And she she I remember even when I when I went to school that day or the next day it was maybe she like texted me. She's like, "Once we started doing that, we've been on the couch. we've been reading the last two or three hours." She's like, "And now I'm like making lunch, and they're still looking at books." But the withness, the like, I am in this with you. Yeah, like we as a family are going to value things, not just. I want you to figure things out so I don't have to waste my time having to entertain you because I have busy, important adult things to do, right? That was an accidental thing that we we did. That's really good. And it pulled us into something with them where those moments during the day, we probably would normally say, go play or go figure it out. And now all of a sudden we were like, here we come, meet us on the couch. And that was an accidental but really helpful thing, I think, that is pushing against that in me to say, like, we're a little community. It's not just like mm-hmm. I have my time and you guys need to figure out your time in a better way. Um, so that community element of being like with people in that space seems to me more crucial than I would have realized. Yeah, that's a that's a good reminder to me. I think about the way that um, you can sort of set the practice, right? intentional people within that community could set the practice and set those values like your kids don't necessarily value shows more than books it's just like it just how it so happened but if you you could shift that that balance really quickly um when you as the leader in that little unit value something else and they're like okay we're valuing that now you know and that's a good reminder i think in all spheres of like in work or family or churches um if there's sort of a nagging um, issue or a flaw in how the system's operating, you can sort of, uh, a, a small cohort or a husband and wife joined together could uh, really shift the balance of, of some of those habits. Mm-hmm. That's interesting applying it even like to church. Yeah. I think of like the, the traditional church experience, you know, especially pre-pastor days, you go to church and as you leave, um, it might be positive, but usually it's like, yeah, what do you think? You know, it's evaluative or it's like whatever, mm-hmm. but it usually steers toward, well, that could have been better or that was a little strange or that was too short or that was too long. Um, whereas it's interesting what you're saying um, to, to kind of key up where you find dissatisfaction or uh, not optimal whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> not optimal feels about whatever your work or your church situation might be. What if you just say, well, what if we valued um, how many, you know, kind people um, we saw there? Or like, what if we like, what if we just looked at it a little differently? And instead of valuing in, in our first example, it was like shows just are dynamic and vibrant and visual and exciting and mm-hmm. loud and funny. And, you know, it's not like they were watching like bad things. It was just like immediate and very stimulating, you know, entertainment. But they love books because they just mm-hmm. love stories because they're human beings. Right. So it, it was just shifting the register of value. But if, if as an adult, we heard sort of or had those moments in which we were dissatisfied with work and we said, well, like, what if we valued something about right. work that we don't normally think about valuing? 
Um, again, maybe the camaraderie of some colleagues, even if you're frustrated with administration or vice versa. Um, or, you know, in the context of our classrooms, like you could have a terrible class. <laughs> I'm not telling you anything don't you don't know. know. I don't know. <laughs> Never had that happen. And then, but then you can you can be like, well, at least I can talk about it with my friends, right? Like at least I have yeah. you guys in the break room or whatever, right? Right. Um, or or like you do get like a golden class occasionally, and you're like, you know what? Not every class is great, but boy, that class. Like you know, you can you can value differently instead of just focusing on the thing that would just oh that's why we need to leave this church or that's why it's like well why might you not need to leave this church or why right like what if you're just focused on something that is not the chief value that the lord is like you're right Mm -hmm. they do need to like shorten the worship set like what do you like is he gonna (laughs) say that when you get to heaven like you're i'm so glad you found the the optimal worship time (laughs) for your church selection like what if we we got through that moment and then looked around again at the place, at the fixed sort of uh, community we find ourselves in or, the, or the, the home life we have, and said, you know what, I, there are other things here to value that I don't immediately turn to. Right. Um, and when you're counseling someone, let's say about church, and they, they <laughs> say, um, no names, but they say, you know, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to go here, we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. Do you ever get brought into conversations or prayerful sort of like seeking of whether or not someone should leave and go to a different church or move for one of those, you know, out the window opportunities or a job or a location on the horizon or something? Um, when you find yourself, if you find yourself in those kinds of places because people are leaving all over the place. Oh, yeah, especially right all the now, time. Um, what do you do? Do you do you say, well, no, you should value this differently? Like, do you try to reframe it for people? Do you say, well, the Lord certainly could, but here's yeah. how we would discern that? I, I, I think, you know, and I try to have integrity on this, both on in conversations with people that are thinking about coming to my church and the people that are thinking of leaving my church, going somewhere else either for any number of reasons, right? But... I, my advice t- tends to be informed by, I think, this book's perspective. I really do. I think this concept is of maximal importance right now pastorally. Um, and and it, it tends to come up m- more than a lot of other things. Um, but I tend to try and say, okay, well, you know, change does happen. There are legitimate reasons to change. I think change should be made slowly in proportion to the gravity of the matter. Um, it's okay to change sock brands a lot more quickly than it is, you know, to change, you know, uh, to change hometowns and things like that. But, um, but I think when it comes to church, I say, you know, picking a new church will mean, you know, months, if not years of, of discernment before and after. And, um, and so I said, you know, if you're thinking of coming here, you know, I want you to do that very slowly. And I want you to consider that to be a transitional season of like a year. And think of it in terms of years, not in terms of weeks and months. Um, and I and I would say, and if someone's like, I really think I should go somewhere else for a church, I say, you know, that that could be really the case. And um, but I would say, wherever you go, um, I said, don't shop around. Uh, don't get into the church shopping thing. That's pretty much a flat prohibition. I I, I offer as a counsel to anybody is church shopping is soul destroying. Church hopping is soul destroying. Um, and uh, and I and I, I advise them to to wherever you go, be there. You know, and you know, in my world, you know, I, I tend to run into the traditionalist uh, kind of kind of 
person uh, a lot. Um, and um, one of the things I have to constantly kind of push back on is this is this idealized vision of the one true church, right? The perfect church that's out there. Um, because, you know, you know, while theology is on paper and theology describes um, an identity, you're going to end up at a at a church among a particular congregation, and that that mm-hmm. ideal vision is going to be in always inadequately expressed in that actual place, regardless of where you are. And if you're that kind of person that's chasing some ideal that needs to requite some need, you know, some some need for the perfect in your heart. Um, you're going to be sorely disappointed and you'll end up never actually maturing and likely losing your faith. If I have to be, if I have to reflect on my own pastoral experience, uh, I think that that kind of thing is I'm out there for the ideal congregation, the ideal group of people, the ideal set of ministries, the ideal theological makeup. And that person is often the person that just leaves the church entirely. So that restlessness that is fundamental to what sloth is, is rooted in this, there is a more perfect this yeah. that is just waiting for me somewhere else. Yeah. And and then that idealization, as you said, and my experience is very similar, usually leads to they no longer go anywhere right. and it's not clear what they believe at all. Yeah, um, I, I, I say to them, I'm like, the Holy Spirit is waiting to lead you into the deep things of God, but he will not do that until you commit to a place. And she talks about, and I think it's quoting Aquinas, but it is that the the counter to sloth is commitment Mm -hmm. the commitment and follow through to to make good on one's commitments right commitment can feel exhilarating (laughs) right (laughs) yes i'll take that job or whatever right yeah but the to commit and commit and commit again right that ordinary that through the drudgery as you had said before um to continue to commit to a place and a people but to commit in a way that isn't just an attempt to sort of make pristine again mm. the commitment. This is where I think that mean? there's another error that I see in church, among church folk is there's this idea of trying to kind of recapture the honeymoon phase mm-hmm. in terms of church or friendship or, you know, romantic relationship, marriage um, is this kind of constant honeymoon. And she talks about this in this chapter. Um, so, so it's very much on her mind, too, is um, is this idea of like, OK, I need to just come back to that initial exhilaration, that initial enthusiasm. Um, um, and and that's that's what recommitting means. And mm. so like again, like I think you know all of us are are, the, are are have spent time in the youth group culture growing up. Yeah. The idea of recommitting your life. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that there's something wrong with this idea of turning again and being reoriented around Christ. If having if we have strayed in any way, we continually have to do that daily. Mm. But you know I think it's this idea of in order to in order to com- continue to affirm this commitment, I have to restart. Mm-hmm. I have to, and I, and with that, it's kind of like that. But then I get that cool kind of rush again of restarting, um, and not being like, nope, I just fell down on my face, mm. and I have to stand up and keep walking and shake the gravel off of me. That's a lot less of a, of a cool, sexy image than, <laughs> than like I get to go back to the pristine. Ah, it's all brand new again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that kind of uh, prioritizes. Um, well, it, I guess it, it denies that there's there's a deeper level of maturity that can come with sort of maybe moving through discouragement or mm-hmm. moving through disappointment. And then on the other side, you don't necessarily have to go back to being a kid again. Like there's there's a deeper and better thing in embracing that maturity, and it's going to look different than the honeymoon period, but yeah. it, it will be better um, in its own way. 
And so I think, yeah, we so often prioritize like newness and the rush of emotion is the thing we should be chasing. But um, I think as with all things, there's kind of a, a sweetness in moving through the darkness or the tough season mm. and finding yourself on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, because she talks about this as ultimately being committed to the Lord and changing you, yeah. right? Not in you going backward mm-hmm. and trying to revive an old version of you. Right. And an old feeling and an yes. old experience of whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, she says sloth is fundamentally resistance to the Lord actually changing you through right. the commitments of love, right? right? That you, the slothful person, seeks to continually, restlessly escape those demands the moment they would require them to change like the moment they would require them to change how they value things and keep that new changed value right like i could i can feel the things that even when we do them well in our family the follow-through and to let Mm -hmm. to let so like i made that impulsive like if you ask for a show we're gonna read a book um and then i think it was lisa was like um we're gonna do this the whole summer and I didn't like, <laughs> you, know, like um, you know, like, well, wait a minute. What about when there's like, you know, we need to really prepare the house for something and, you know, the, and we just need them. Um, and, and it was like, if we commit to this as like a long-term thing, we're, we're not just committing to like, yes, stopping whatever we're doing and reading the book. We're committing to letting that practice change the way we function mm-hmm. right. as a person day to day because we're opening ourselves up to that just being part of the almost expected interruption of our time right um i but just uh, as soon as we she i think extended this timeline to be like past the week or my like frustrated day i probably would have been like let's this week you know this is what we're doing but but it's like to give that what if we just said well we'll do this for a year Mm. (laughs) like the parent soul in me might die for a second you know like go into (laughs) shock um but then it would be like genuinely saying like we want to change with yeah. this little practice. We want to let it actually have an effect on the life and the way we view each other and our time together. Um, and that is a very different thing um, mm-hmm. to let something breathe long enough to change you. Right. Um, so was there when she starts talking about, okay, so the remedies of this um, is commitment, but we've sort of tried to nuance the nature of that commitment. It's not just commitment um, in, in a way that sort of is prepackaged or we know what we're going to get by committing or recommitting but it's a commitment to a place commitment to a people um commitment to if we're married commitment to that person or our family um in a deep way that we don't have some set timeline or it needs to feel like this or it needs to make me feel better about this or um so she says uh, you know commitment to a place is, is, is pushing back against sloth, is allowing the Lord to slowly change us. What other ways do we combat or resist this daily? I mean, this is the noontime demon, right? Like, yeah. We hit noon every day, unfortunately. I've been thinking about that, that part of it, and then um, as reading the chapter on anger as well, the component of this that is our embodied selves, like that acknowledging and being aware of that there are times of the day and times of the year that I am going to want to change everything. And my parents have a great rule, which is that you make no decisions while jet lagged. Nice. That's a great because rule. Because they've done so much traveling and they'll come back from, you know, Mongolia. And then the <laughs> next day you're like, maybe we should, 
because you're you're exhausted, you're spent, you're worn out, and so the that has become a refrain that doesn't just apply to jet lag in our family, mm. but to a lot of different things of like. I think it could apply to grief. I think it could apply like mm, yeah. don't <laughs> this horrible thing has happened or just this annual rhythm has happened and now you want to make a big change. Um, and so acknowledging our embodied selves and like we are human beings at 2 p.m. we get sleepy and um, in June we get sad and like, you know, like those yeah. sort of acknowledgements I think are really helpful and communicating that to other people who can then weekly, annually uh, remind you of like, so it seems like every time you have your big annual review that you question everything, you know, or something. Right. So I think that goes back to that community piece and having a standard where you could look at it, you know, your spouse and say like, so you're looking at Zillow, but that's because we just got back from vacation. And I think you're like, you know, so I think there's that transparency that needs to happen with people who know you and will call it to attention. Well, Laura, I think about like, you know, you and I shared a classroom for a lot of years and it was, uh, you know, I was thinking about like, there were like these, like, yeah, it was like the recurring things. It's like, so we're listening to that sad soundtrack again, huh? <laughs> what's going <laughs> yeah. on? When you were like, and I'm like, oh, guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> Sufjan yeah. is on again at 7 a.m.? Yeah, that's a, that's way a... too early for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you have to have, you have to have those people. Yeah. I think also, um, they do need to be uh, you need to have church people it, yeah because yeah, that's right <laughs> spouses are are you know amazing but we also will conspire with each other absolutely like we yeah. you know because you see all the stress and strains and you know like man all right you know what this we're gonna there's a, a cheat sunday we're gonna have an extra fudge you know whatever like Ooh, you'll yeah. do the things because you're witness to all the stress and strain and you yeah. sympathize and experience much of the same so i i found spouses will often be a world unto themselves that won't permit yeah. a lot of other voices in and can have rhythms that just get built up over time that are wildly <laughs> uh, not the best thing in the world but are agreed to so it feels like a fortress it's like ooh um, sometimes you know in the community of faith or like the Lord gives us the Lord gives us people who are less close to us so they can speak a little more freely about yeah. like, hey, you know, I remember in our marriage, <laughs> we often did other, you know, things that weren't always the best thing in the world. But like, I love that idea that it's the same thing with like, Lisa and I might think this is great, let the kids get bored and creative so that they can learn how to play by themselves. But that's, that could be a conspiracy of us wanting to have our own time to do whatever. Right. It's a different thing to have that community get a little bit bigger. And, and the monk doesn't just have one other monk, you know, or whatever. Like, there is this community of people you did not pick, right? You, you God willing, right. pick your spouse. <laughs> but yeah. you, need, you need a community that you but didn't many, pick. But many haven't. Right. And that, I think, is the, the strange um, and maybe difficult, but sort of that is maybe the most, one of the most beautiful gifts of the church is the community you didn't pick who is authorized if you're willing to change right i don't think anybody does this naturally uh, is authorized to speak into your life in a way that that could um, save you from right a lot of that a lot of those habits patterns that are ultimately sloth apathy or escapism yeah do you guys feel that the church i mean can we honestly say that we have experience of the church in this way? I think I think I could genuinely say that mm -hmm. I because I, I feel like sometimes we can talk about church and it can sound to people like, what are you talking about? Like that's not what church feels like, or that's not the experience I've had with church. Um, but we 
you know, have been a part of a few different churches here and I think have experienced something like this Mm -hmm. in all those places. 100%. That can't be like some, oh, there's three churches. (laughs) That has to in part just be just staying long enough to try to see that. Or what do you think that, like for encouragement for those who are listening to this, maybe they've stopped going to church because it got so frustrating. Maybe it really did feel like the Sunday experience hour. Um, Maybe for good reasons they got frustrated. Um, But do we have encouragement that this is possible anywhere, uh, any place that, that God has, has called and, and his spirit can be found. I mean, it, does this feel out of reach for people? Do we, do we feel like we could genuinely encourage that if people stick with it or commit to a church that is reasonably healthy, these are the things we can expect of the body of Christ? He said, "Teetering out." I the think. Edge of a I think if you're willing to, huh. if you're willing to be known and to to get to know people, then that's possible. I think if you are continually on the margins and uh, never really unveiling any of the struggles or never getting to know anyone there, then you'll be hard pressed to have people who will go on the sanctifying journey with you, right? So I think um, the biggest game changer for me in my twenties was going to a church where I was really known by people and like pastors would notice if you weren't there right like hey where have you been um so i think you kind of have to be willing to be a part of that system and yeah i've definitely seen it because of that i have i can recall specific scenarios where people have approached the pastors with amazing opportunities and the pastors have come back and said like here's five reasons why we think that would be a really bad idea and then people contemplate pray and agree you know Mm. and so uh but it it does require that you don't just value your opinion only um that you put in the effort to get to know people even when it's awkward and that you you know take your pastor to a cup of coffee and like and just sort of on get their honest feedback and you know not just view that relationship as always um their serving me or like they're just speaking to me but you kind of have a, make it a conversation and mm-hmm. so you have to be willing to to share and then when they give feedback to take it honestly if they're a person you can you can trust and um but you can only learn that over extended amount of time yeah well hayden you said like not weeks or months but years yeah and yeah. it takes years i think i think i might add to that too is is the manner in which we are we know and are known um, matters greatly um because there's a lot of um again because we are we just are we breathe the air of optimization especially in our part of the world um, and we have the illusion that we can optimize everything we carry that into our relationships to think we can optimize each other and i see this happen a lot in churches the, there's a good impulse to like be known and like to share our burdens and to share problems but then i've added the case before where i'll like where I'll, I'll practice that myself and I'll say to someone, yeah, I'm really dealing with this thing right now. You know, it's, it's really tough. Like I got this person, I got this kind of immovable object, uh, that I'm kind of dealing with in my life. And then it becomes like every three days it'll be like, is it better yet? Is it better yet? Is it better yet? I've been praying. Is it better yet? And I think we do that to each other, maybe well-meaningly, yeah. but, and, but it is, it ends up actually discouraging that kind of thing. And, and it also fails to acknowledge the reality of uh, many of the real things we deal with are years long in the making and unmaking, or they're not going to be made at all. This side of the resurrection, they are just yeah. our thing. 
And so I think in addition to what Laura wisely said about that kind of transparency and that willingness to have that dialogue is also the, is a, is a, is a coming away from that, from that kind of Christianized optimization culture. Mm. Um, and it, and it, and I think one of the, the, the best ways to that is, 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 a, is an orientation around some sort of contemplative habit. And really all we mean by that, it doesn't mean anything sort of woo woo. It, it, it really, it can, but, but what it really means in the Christian tradition is uh, a prayerfulness without an agenda. Hmm. It's a prayerfulness of encounter. Um, and it's a prayerfulness where we don't have a list of things we need to talk to God about or that we want God to do for us. Or, and that trickles down into how we relate to other of the image bearers of God, you know, we, where we don't come to them with like, wow, I'm interacting with you because I need to touch, I need to touch base with you and I need to have a relationship. I need to build relationship and I need you to, I need to, and I need to fix your spiritual problems because that's what we do. And, and, and I think <laughs> it's just, wow, we're both, have, we both have things. You know, I've had this with both of you at different times. It's like, wow, this is the fixed furniture of life, guys. And, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that, 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 you know, whatever, what does progress even mean for this? None, none of us know. Right. Right. So what are we? We're in, the pre- we're in the company of one another as those who are filled with the Spirit of God. And that means something. It just doesn't mean anything that can be assessed by metrics of productivity or optimization. Mm-hmm. And I think that in addition to that transparency, that's a powerful combination right mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it's not a commitment to fix each other. Yeah, <laughs> and it's right. not a commitment to the Lord if and when He fixes us, mm-hmm. usually in the way we want Him to. It's just a commitment to each other and a commitment to the Lord. Yeah, and then the the result of that over time is change. Maybe not fix anything, but to change, maybe to see or to value anew. But even that, I think, is a really helpful warning. Like in a breath can be sort of instrumentalized and yeah. say, okay, I need to find the best community of faith that will help me with all my issues, give me all the time I need in order to fix all these issues or the problems I have. And um, and that's not the monk in, the, in his cell. That's not the person who, who just shows up and stays. Um, Although it can be, even monasteries deal with this, you know, mm. like, and, and again, there's this, some, sometimes the monastic idealism, right? And I've, I've had friends that went into novitiates who had this problem is like, oh, look at this, like on their social media profile just shows how prayerful they, you know, they all are. And, and then they, then they get there and it's like a, it's like a, it's a slaughterhouse, you know, and, uh, and it's, it, there's, it's there too. You know, the monk may fantasize about, well, what if I just like settled down with the family and the family person, you know, like in the grind of, you know, of their commitments are like, wow, if only I could, you know, mm-hmm. just have all my time to pray, you know, it's like in both places are, are the well-trod path of letting life catch up to you and having to confront this in the stadium. Which is so helpful. It's something I was thinking as reading this chapter is the the idea that sloth isn't new. I think we think of sloth yeah. as such like a it was invented in the 1900s or something. <laughs> Wait, we had disposable income and we can be we can be lazy and distracted, you know. Yeah. But then you realize, nope. Uh, what year are we talking with right. Evagrius there? I don't like even know. Fourth century. In fourth yeah. century. Yeah. So so this idea of okay, this there is no um, surefire solution that's like will make it so you never have this acedia again there's not there's not some magic combination of like yeah completely changing your life and it'll go away it's gonna it's gonna follow you and that's a helpful reminder in just um being okay with the the reality of that sometimes these waves will come over us and then having people who are not surprised and aren't don't respond like react to it and like okay 
we're going to change everything. You know, you got to have the people who are, uh, are steady enough in where they are, um, that they can guide you through it and walk alongside you in it. And then when they go through the same wave, which will happen right. at some point, um, you can sort of be a, a marker to remind them on the other end. Yeah, Newton time is going to come every day. <laughs> it comes every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, Laura, Hayden, thank you both um, for talking about this. Even just having a chat with you guys, I, I can just recognize places in my own life where I've probably been rescued from some of this by the good company of people who are not shocked or surprised at many things. Uh, so thank you for this conversation. I hope it is an encouragement to everyone to say, hey, you're not alone, and it'll happen to all of us tomorrow. <laughs> but hang in there. The Lord is good. See you at noon. See you at noon. <laughs>